Welcome back to New Books American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. My guest is David Hollinger, author of Protestants Abroad, How Missionaries Tried to Change the World and Change America, published by Princeton University Press. Hollinger is the Preston Hotchkiss Professor of American History Emeritus at the University of California. Protestant Abroad offers a history of how American missionaries, their children and associates, shaped U.S. foreign policy and multicultural awareness at home. An imperialistic and ethnocentric project inspired by religion in the late 19th century resulted in a missionary cosmopolitanism instrumental in shaping U.S. foreign policy towards Asia in the 20th. The missionary effort evolved from a religious one to a secular service project offering a model for foreign aid and cross-cultural engagement. Missionaries from liberal denominations inspired by the social gospel and with language and cultural skills were the primary source of information about foreign people. As an influential group, children of missionaries returning to secular educations and careers at home shaped American culture and politics through popular writing, scholarship on foreign lands, and diplomatic service. Hollinger has shed significant light on a group of Americans who have been largely ignored in the development of America's relationship to the world. Here is my conversation with David Hollinger. I want to welcome David Hollinger to the show. How are you, David? I'm just fine. Glad to be talking to you today, Lillian. Thank you for coming on to talk about your book. But before we get into it, which, by the way, is full of interesting people and ideas, tell us about yourself and how you came to write Americans Abroad. Well, I've been writing... uh in American intellectual history for some years. And then in the middle of the 1990s, I finished two books that suddenly made me aware of the potential for the study of American missionaries. And the one book that I finished then was the study of American multiculturalism, a book called Post-Ethnic America. And as I was working on that, I was studying some of the antecedents of the multiculturalist movements of the 1990s. And I realized that... um, some of these missionary types from like 50 years before were precursors of some of the more defensible aspects of of multiculturalism. I found, for example, a book called uh, uh, The Christ of the Indian Road by a famous missionary named E. Stanley Jones. And he's arguing, well, Christianity looks like one thing when it's done in different parts of Africa, it looks differently in Japan. And there are many different roads to Christ. And it has this, what is basically a grid for multiculturalism as we encountered it at American universities in the 1990s, but it was strictly within this Christian framework. But that sort of interested me. And then at the same time, I finished another book called Science, Jews, and Secular Culture, which culminated an interest that I'd had for a number of years in cosmopolitan Jews in the United States and the role that they had played in deprovincializing the culture. And, uh, <clears throat> It just suddenly occurred to me that the some of these missionary types were actually the closest thing to an Anglo-Protestant equivalent of the cosmopolitan Jews, I mean, Hannah Arendt and uh, Herbert Marcuse and Lionel Trilling and all these people, both the Hitler-era emigres and the descendants of the earlier migrations from Eastern and Central Europe. So I just put those two ideas together and thought, well, look, maybe I ought to try to do something about these Protestants and uh, see whether or not um, they were, in fact, sort of the uh, Anglo-Protestant equivalent of the, of the Jewish cosmopolitans. And I found that they were. I mean, there were just lots of things that these 
uh, missionaries did that undercut the provincialism of the United States. And they came at it very differently, of course. I mean, that they, the missionary types, were interested in things that were Asian, especially China, Japan, India, the Arab societies of Western Asia, whereas the Jewish cosmopolitans were very much focused on Europe. So I realized that there were kind of parallel tracks here. Um, anyway, that's the so sort of the, stru- the structure of the book, and it, it followed directly from these two earlier engagements of mine that I've been working on for a long time. I should underscore, Lillian, that I'm, I'm not from a missionary family myself, and I mentioned that in the preface. And the reason I think it's important to say that is that a lot of people, when they find out what I'm working on, they just assume that I'm from a missionary family. I mean, who would write about missionaries except guys who are part of that themselves? And I guess a big point that I have is I think my book ought to be of interest to people who don't know anything about missionaries. It's a book not so much for people who are interested in missionaries. It's a book for people who are not interested in missionaries but should be. Right. What is interesting is that I know you as an intellectual historian of American thought, and you have written about liberal religious thought. So this book seems like a departure from what you've done before. I haven't seen you as a historian of American soft power or of diplomatic history, and that is where I would put this book. Is it different from what you've done before? Yeah, you're right about that. That is a new uh, development and uh, a new engagement of mine, and it does spin out of this realization that missionary cosmopolitanism was so predominantly Asian. And so in order to uh, complete this book, I had to do a fair amount of research on Chinese studies and Southeast Asian studies and studies of the Arab world and so on. And so I got involved with that. And it does then uh, participate, uh, at least to some extent, in, con- in today's conversations about U.S. and the world, you know, a sort of a, a burgeoning field. So I, uh, I guess I'm now a participant in a modest way in the field of, of U.S. and the world. But certainly, uh, um, certainly there are continuities within the past. I guess I would, I would single out one thing that makes this book consistent uh, with what I've done before, and in some ways a culmination, and that is that. I began writing about cosmopolitanism in 1975, and I've been interested in, well, really almost all of my work in a tension between a drive on the one hand to include, to sort of expand the circle of the we, to bring more and more kinds of people into communication with one another and into cooperation and mutual enlightenment. I found this an important cosmopolitan theme, the tension between that on one hand, and on the other, the need to define a community in sharp enough terms so that it could function to provide intimacy and belonging and a sense of identity. So if you're trying to include people, what are you trying to include them in? And until I wrote this book, I was thinking of that problem mostly with regard to the United States, and that's where the multiculturalism interest comes in. If we're going to have a variety of different people in the U.S. of different kinds of cultures, then what enables all these different kinds of people to be sufficiently part of the same thing? 
to function in a polity, to exercise democratic privileges together, to find some way to distribute the common resources. So the matter of how you can be different, but yet sufficiently the same to function, is something that I've been interested in for a long time. And when I did this book, uh, I found that old engagement uh, reappearing. Except now it was talking about it not only with regard to the United States, but with regard to the history of the Christian community of faith. So uh, one of my chapters is about how these American Protestants deal with the diversity that they encounter as they go abroad. So they believe in the unity of the gospel. All Christians are part of the body of Christ and so on. So they go abroad and they encounter all these Chinese and all these Tamils and all these Arabs, and they try to convince them that Christianity is the right thing. And it's sort of a hard sell. And they don't make that many converts. And along the way, they become sensitive to the radical diversity of the world. And so then a a big crisis for the missionary project is to figure out how a a species-wide community can be created on the basis of Christianity. And by and large, it doesn't work. David, let me interrupt you for a minute. I want to back up to the late 19th century when the American missionary movement was to foreign lands exploded. Before we get to the cosmopolitans, how did missionaries become part of the American expansionism in the world? You're entirely correct about that, Lillian. Many of the missionaries that go abroad, all these Baptists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists and so forth that go abroad in the middle and late 19th century are very uncritical about their home culture. And that continues in many ways down through the 20th century, in the early mid-20th century. And the idea is that um, you want to sell Christ abroad, but yet what you meant by Christ turned out to be sort of mainstream American culture. And a lot of these missionaries then were, you know, advancing American cultural and political interests abroad under the canopy of trying to advance Christianity. So you're entirely right that the foundation for this is an effort to make the rest of the world more like what it's like to be in a Presbyterian church in Terre Haute, Indiana. That's dead correct. And the thing that I've described is how that problem, that that project runs into a lot of problems. Right. When we think of missionaries today, we often think of a negative legacy. The idea they went abroad taking their American culture, and when they were there, they were very insular. You're entirely right about that. And one of the things that I hope my book will do is to expand popular understandings of the missionary project, because indeed part of the missionary project's legacy is one of American imperialism, support for American economic, diplomatic, and military expansion and geopolitical domination of the world. Much of the missionary project participated in that. But a big point about my book is that even though that's true, it's not the only truth. And there's a dialectic involved as well, so that many of the people who are involved in this project to make the rest of the world more like the United States decide that that's not such a good idea after all. And they bring back to the U.S. fragments of culture from around the world, especially these Asian societies that I mentioned. They bring back these fragments of culture 
that undercut this. Right. These missionaries go out into the world thinking they would change it into a reflection of America. And as you say in the title of your book, instead they were changed by the world. That's right. They don't realize that the agency power and self-determination of foreign people and America is powerful. It's not the only power in the world. It's a two-way street. Well, it does, but it's, it's also important to recognize that when we talk about power here, it's not just like military and economic power. but Cultural culture. power, exactly. Because what, what, what happens to some of these, uh, especially in uh, Japan and also really in the other mission fields, uh, when they get there, they generally don't have much of a feel for Japanese culture and history. They know about it superficially. But the longer they're there, a lot of them really open up their eyes. And so there are any number of cases where these missionaries start writing um, books and articles and some of great scholarly merit about Japanese art, about Buddhism, about Japanese painting. And so you have uh, a sense of awe from these provincial Americans when they confront the depth and magnitude of traditional Japanese culture. And this is a really important dynamic because what happens is that when you realize <clears throat> the antiquity and the depth and the complexity of a lot of these foreign cultures and societies, it has the result of cutting America down to size that the United States and its religion and its racial conventions and its cultural habits suddenly seem like, uh, you know, just another pebble on the beach. And there's a whole lot of the rest of the world out there. There's so many more possibilities for how human life can take form that uh, they didn't realize before they went out there. So that's, again, uh, how they become cosmopolitans because they become impressed with the uh, authority and the complexity of so many of these other societies and with the moral witness that those other societies constitute against the provinciality of their home society. You don't dwell on all missionaries. You focus on certain missionaries that come out of the modernist fundamentalist debate, and you deal with the ones you call ecumenical Protestants or cosmopolitans. How do they differ from their fundamentalist missionaries? And what happens in the field when they carry what they carry with them, their debates from home? That's exactly what happens and with, uh, <clears throat> with quite striking results. And in order to understand that, one needs to begin by distinguishing the um, educational level of the two groups of missionaries. The ecumenical missionaries, <clears throat> the missionaries sent out by the, uh, the churches in the United States with the strongest class position and uh, with, the, with the strongest uh, standing in a society, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, the Northern Baptists, some of the Lutheran groups, the Disciples of Christ, the Quakers, and the Episcopalians. <clears throat> These people, especially after about 1905 or 1910, they are... Um, very learned about um, the higher criticism of the Bible, which is to say that they're aware that the Bible is a historical document and that even the truest of faiths were um, took form through the actions of real people in real time. And they also are infused with the social gospel. So people like that are 
more prepared to discover things abroad and to perceive like the complexity of Japanese culture than the less educated fundamentalist and more extreme evangelical missionaries like, um, oh, the Church of the Nazarene, Seventh-day Adventist, Assemblies of God, <clears throat> Christian Missionary Alliance, Southern Baptist Convention. These people in that orientation, uh, they are programmed mostly to see heathens. So when they go to India, they see heathens. They go to uh, Arab countries, they see heathens. They go to uh, Thailand, they see heathens. And so the, their lack of education means that they process their experience abroad very differently than the better educated Protestants, the ecumenical ones who already have generated what you might call a kind of a proto-liberal point of view. And this is why your reference to the modernist fundamentalist dispute is exactly right. The ecumenical missionaries are more in tune with modern science they uh, accept the Darwinian revolution and natural history, whereas a lot of the uh, fundamentalist uh, evangelical Protestant missionaries, <clears throat> they don't believe in Darwin. They're, they're creationists. They've not bought on with this stuff. You remember the Scopes trial and all that kind of thing. And also they really, really do not want the higher criticism. In other words, they're not interested in modern biblical scholarship. And the social gospel, they're against that too. They say you just have to, you know, preach Christ and don't worry about these other things. Whereas the ecumenical missionaries, they get abroad and they see that people need medical help and they need uh, technological aid of various kinds. So these liberal missionaries, they decide, well, we got to get some service projects going here. So they set up hospitals and schools and <clears throat> uh, medical schools and they create a whole technical infrastructure, which then lasts for many generations of many parts of Africa today. A lot of the technical infrastructure was created by these missionaries, and it was certainly true in China as well. So there's, a, there's a, 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 an expansiveness on the part of the ecumenical missionaries, an openness to experience. So the dialectic operates much more there. Now, the reason that my book is mostly about those people and not about the fundamentalists and more evangelical types is because it's these liberals, it's these ecumenical people who, in their adulthood in the United States, become prominent in one area after of American life after another. They become prominent writers like John Hersey and Pearl Buck. They become prominent figures in the State Department and the Foreign Service, like you know the legendary China hands that are purged during the McCarthy era. They become great academics, you know, like Edwin Reischauer, the guy that develops Asian studies at Harvard University in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Now, when you look at the fundamentalist missionaries, <clears throat> when they and their children come back to the United States, you don't find public careers like that hardly at all. These people generally stick with the faith. They will become operative in, say, Wheaton College or Fuller Theological Seminary. They will work within evangelical institutions, and there's a kind of cultural isolation about that. So a book like mine, which is about the impact on American public life of the Foreign Missionary Project, doesn't have that much to say about the fundamentalists and the extreme evangelicals. Now, if somebody were to do a book about the American Missionary Project as such, 
and not be concerned, as I was, with its impact on American domestic life, then you'd have a lot to say about these fundamentalists. Indeed, most of the American missionaries abroad for the last 50 years have been fundamentalists, and they still are. Because what happened is the liberals, they decide that this whole project was probably a mistake. And so they pull back from it. They don't like to call themselves missionaries. Some of them now have programs they call global ministries, which are very heavily social service organizations. But, um, you know, the Southern Baptists, the Assembly of God, uh, Church of Nazarene, they're still out there preaching the gospel, and you can find them today all over the world. Let me go on to another thing you're doing. You are not only focusing on the cosmopolitan missionaries, but on the children of missionaries who are born overseas, grow up overseas, and come back to the United States to attend very elite institutions for their education, and they go into all kinds of influential diplomatic, literary, and academic careers. They have been shaped by these foreign ex experiences. This is the sweet spot, I think, of this group. I agree with you, and I, I want to say right away, Lillian, that when I first designed this book, I designed it, and I think the first grant applications that I did were along the lines that this is going to be a book about the children of missionaries. <clears throat> but the more research I did, I found that while the children of missionaries were my main characters, I found so many instances of missionaries themselves who, when they, say, retired from the mission field and came back and did something in the U.S., uh, or when they... Um, wrote books from the mission field that participated in American public debates of various kinds, when the missionaries tried to exercise influence within their denominational fellowships, uh, within transdenominational organizations of various kinds, what I found again and again <clears throat> were that the missionaries themselves were active in the same way. They became cosmopolitan in the same way. They pushed for the same anti-racist, anti-imperialist policies that their children did. So it's a matter of degree, and it's a matter of quantity. It's a matter of degree, and not as many of the missionaries became as liberal as their children did. And it's a matter of uh, quantity in that many more of the children of missionaries had their full adult careers in the United States. But I want to underscore one important example of a missionary rather than a missionary son or daughter that illustrates uh, what I found when I really went into my research. This was a complete surprise to me. I come across this, um, <clears throat> this foreign service officer named Kenneth Landon. Now, Landon had been a missionary in Siam, later Thailand, for 10 years, and uh, he came back to the United States, became an academic but he was one of the only guys in the whole country that knew anything about Thailand. So when uh, President Roosevelt in 1941 is wondering what's going to happen if the United States gets into a war against Japan, well, how does Thailand fit into this? Uh, he has uh, his office look around for somebody who knows about Thailand, and they couldn't find anybody. And finally, they locate this one former missionary, Kenneth Landon. So he comes to Washington and becomes a really important figure in the State Department all during the war, arguing in favor of alliances with non-white uh, decolonizing peoples and opposing the more imperialist ideas of the desk officers who were interested in the French Empire and the British Empire and the Dutch Empire. And then after the war, 
they sent him to Southeast Asia, and he develops this remarkable friendship with Ho Chi Minh. And uh, a document that he writes in early 1946 from Vietnam uh, turns out to be the first, the, the document of earliest date in the Pentagon Papers when they're put together by, uh, you know, Daniel Ellsberg and all these people in the early 1970s. And so, so Landon is somebody, a, a figure of great historical importance in the diplomatic history of the United States, virtually unknown except to you, except for a handful of diplomatic. Dan Landon was very interesting. I was truly shocked how little the United States government knew about Siam. And then I read about his wife, Margaret Landon, who wrote Anna and the King of Siam. And when I read that, I was reminded that the book was the first time I ever heard of Siam as a kid. I loved it because I saw myself in that portion of your book because of the movie. As a kid, I was enthralled with the whole thing. It was magical. Then to read that the United States knew so little about Southeast Asia, it was like it didn't even exist. Yeah, well, that's that's very important. <clears throat> and and uh, and several times recently when I've, I've had opportunities to talk about this book with different groups that are interested in it, I will occasionally ask for a show of hands. How many people in this audience know that The King and I, you know, the big musical and all the movies that were based on Margaret Landon's uh, novel of 1944 and uh, The King of Siam. How many people present know that uh, we owe all of that to this missionary woman? And uh, the other night at Columbia University, I had a group of about 50 and nobody raised their hand. And then here about a month ago, I had a group of uh, much larger than that here at Berkeley, and there were three or four people that didn't raise their hands. And that's an example of how the impact of people with missionary experience on the United States is largely unknown, that people just don't recognize it. But you're, you're dead right that Margaret Landon's um, presentation of life in Siam to the United States you know, is an enduring icon. I mean, nowadays we look at it and we see various things that are sort of prejudice about it, and it doesn't sort of reflect the values that we would have today. But at the time, it was a remarkable opening up of American popular culture to the integrity of foreign cultures. Because, you know, the king of Siam, even though, you know, our heroine you know, brings him around to sort of follow her ideas, he's a man of real character and he presides over a country that resisted colonization, that had its own highly articulated culture. So it participates in the same pattern. And I'm so delighted that you noticed that part of the book. There were so many surprises in your book. It was amazing. Well, my one of my favorite <clears throat> stories in there is how when Landon shows up in the summer of 41, having been summoned by the president of the United States, um, he, he goes to uh, the Army Intelligence Headquarters because he thinks before he sees the president, he ought to brief himself on what American intelligence agencies already know about Thailand. And he opens the file, and it consists only of four published articles that he himself had written. This was the entire intelligence file. And I found other cases like that. I didn't get them all in the book, but I remember when I interviewed uh, <clears throat> Robert Goheen, the former president of Princeton and ambassador to India, a very distinguished guy. And uh, uh, he was a missionary son from India. And he told me that when he reported as Army intelligence officer in early 1942, uh, and he looked at the stuff they had on India, and it mostly consisted of clippings from Time magazine. This was the level of American intelligence. So, so that, that, and that's one of the things that I found the most striking about this project is the role of World War II 
as an event that catapulted these various missionary-connected peoples, missionary sons like Robert Goheen and Edwin Reichauer, and missionaries like Kenneth Landon, catapulted them into positions of influence. And it was because of their language facility and their understanding of these foreign societies that suddenly became of strategic importance to the United States. This gives them their opportunities to be, you know, actors on the historical stage. And um, and part of my book is to call attention to this. And since many of the people, like nobody would ever think of John Hersey as a racist or as an imperialist. I mean, his great book, you know, Hiroshima and the other things that he wrote are, you know, liberal classics. But yet hardly anybody knows that he's a missionary son. And I also did the same thing with uh, Margaret Landon. I had a, a, a meeting in Seattle not long ago, and a lot of people there. And I said, how many, how many people in this room know that John Hersey was a missionary son? Not a single hand was raised. So there's a kind of hidden aspect to this, Lillian. Hidden in the sense that, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you felt that way. What I really enjoyed was reading about the missionaries and the children of missionaries who during World War II advocated for Japanese Americans as they were interned by the U.S. government. They took up their case, providing aid, and trying to help them in practical ways. Then I thought, why didn't I know this? Well, and it's, it's hardly known at all. I mean, and one of the reasons I guess it's not known is that hardly anybody cared about the Japanese Americans. Uh, you know, most, Amer- most people of whatever political orientation and, you know, the great liberal Earl Warren was part of that, and the order was made by the great liberal president, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And a lot of people are not aware that there was opposition to it. And, and the opposition was relatively small, but these former missionaries and children of missionaries were right in the center of it all. And I'm glad that you picked up on that. I have a fairly long section on that in the book because I kept finding evidence of these uh, missionaries who were devoted to helping the Japanese Americans. I found one couple that uh, that when, when the uh, Japanese Americans were finally let out of Manzanera, I found one couple that found housing and jobs for 1,000 of them in Chicago, an area of the country where it wasn't as given to anti-Japanese prejudice as California and Washington and Oregon. So, yeah, there's there's a big story there about how um, these missionary people were uh, able to see the deeply racist character of the internment of the Japanese Americans, and hardly anybody else got it, but they did. The other thing was the torturing of Japanese soldiers. I can't remember the name of the missionary who said, you're not going to get any information out of them by torturing them. They are prepared for that. They've been trained for that. Be kind to them. Treat them like human beings by respecting them, and you will get more information. Well, and and during the debates over the Iraq War, when um, and it was interesting that it was some of the old Marines that were particularly embarrassed by what the American government did during the Iraq War to these POWs, it was some of these Marines that made public for the first time uh, one of the three military officers that I talk about in that chapter of the book, and that's uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sherwood Moran of the Marine Corps, um, and they did publicize his writings at that time. But between 19, between the end of the war and 2003, uh, nobody knew about him at all. And if you read any of the books on the Pacific War, there are no, ref- no references to this guy. 
But what's very striking about him and then two other cases that I want to allude to in a moment, uh, what's striking about him <clears throat> is that, you know, he's put in that job because of his language fluency. Okay, so he's there. He knows Japanese very well. He's, he's able to talk to these Japanese soldiers face to face and get stuff out of them. That's the reason he's there. But what he does with his opportunity is what's astonishing. This guy takes the Sermon on the Mount, literally. So he'd read Matthew 25, you know, insofar as you do anything to any, anybody else, you do it unto me, says Jesus of Nazareth. And he buys all that stuff. And he'd been a congregational missionary in Japan for 26 years before the war. So he's a, a very straight uh, ecumenical missionary who believes in the gospel in this um, very liberal way, and he applies it. But one thing that uh, I think maybe the, the biggest surprise to me, and maybe it shouldn't have been surprised, <clears throat> is when I was working on that guy, I wondered what happened in the Navy and the Army in the Pacific, and I went through the various books on that, and I found that the Navy had a similar guy, a missionary son, uh, also a Congregationalist from Japan, and the Army had a missionary son, uh, Seventh-day Adventist, actually, from Japan. And these other two um, former uh, people from Japan, they carried out almost the same program as this Marine did. But they didn't know about each other because the service rivalries during the Pacific War were so great that none of the services wanted to share any information with one another. And the historiography, the scholarship that we have on World War II, follows the service rivalries. So if you read a history of the Marines, they might have a reference to the Marine, but they don't know about the other guys. You read a history of the Navy, and they might have a reference to this naval officer, but they won't have the Army or the, or the uh, Marine in it. So that chapter of my book interests me because, so far as I know, I'm the first person to point out how large a pattern this was. And that the relatively humane treatment of Japanese POWs that distinguished the American military presence in the Pacific War is because of the missionaries. It's really interesting. I want to talk about China because you spent a good chunk of time on China in the book. It's, a, it's big in the news today. The missionaries who were warning the United States, look, the nationalists are not going to win China. We need to be talking to the communists, but the U.S., was digging its heels and wanted to support the nationalists. And that refusal to talk to communists was a disaster. Can you talk about that a bit? That's right. And, yeah, the, the, that's, that's, um, that's a chapter that uh, deals with what are, are colloquially called, uh, you know, the China hands, and that's because some of the people in the State Department were missionary sons who were among the, the big State Department, uh, uh, the Foreign Service guys specializing in China. And what happens, of course, is that John Patton Davies Jr. and John S. Service, the most famous of these, um, they're out there in Yan'an, in northern China, which is where Mao Zedong's capital was uh, during the 30s and during the war, right up until the time of the revolution of 1949. They go out there and spend time with the communists against the will of the Kuomintang government, the government of Chiang Kai-shek, which is the government of China that was supported by the U.S. government and especially by Time magazine and uh, a lot of uh, American politicians. So what happens is that Davies and 
service insist on visiting uh, the, Chinese, the Chinese capitalist uh, uh, capital, and they spend a lot of time there. They spend many months, many months there, and they've already had a lot of experience in Chongqing, the capital of the nationalists, where Chiang Kai-shek's group, and they, they write these dispatches back to Washington saying, look, we've got it wrong over here. Uh, whatever the problems are with these communists, they're the future of China. Chiang uh, Kai-shek's regime is so corrupt. He's not winning the support of the people. And, you know, we've, we've got to alter our policies so that we're prepared for a future in which the communists are going to win. Now, of course, they were dead right on that. And all the historians now who talk about Chinese history point out that uh, it's not till 1972 when Nixon and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger go to China and uh, establish American diplomatic relations. It's not until then that the wisdom of what these guys said in 1944 was vindicated. In the meantime, they're, of course, purged. They're thrown out of the State Department during the early 50s, during the McCarthy era, because they were right, but they were right in a way that the political um, political establishment of the, of the United States at that time would not recognize. Now, service goes through, I don't remember now, I think there's more than a dozen loyalty hearings of various committees of the Congress and of, of the executive branch. So they just keep at him until they can find some way to uh, get rid of him. And they, that chapter you know, recounts the amazing scandals of the McCarthy era and the lack of civil liberties and the uh, dirty politics of J. Edgar Hoover uh, with all sorts of illegal taped conversations then uh, surreptitiously leaked to people like McCarthy. So the the thing about that chapter, though, that I want to emphasize is that the the story of the China hands is um, a story of how missionary-connected Americans are right in the middle of the process by which America engages China, the largest society in Asia. But it's also important because they lose. I mean, you could say in the long run they won after 1972. But it's an example of how the missionary-connected people who generally were willing to support indigenous people around the world who were not American clients, Chiang Kai-shek was, support, support Arab nationalists as they did in the Arab world, uh, support um, uh, revolutionary movements in Vietnam. They, they lost. I mean, you'd, you'd say that, that again and again, the missionary connected people who tried to get the United States to establish enduring alliances with non-white decolonizing peoples and with foreign political organizations that were not just the clients of the West, like Chiang Kai-shek, they lost again and again. So their historical significance is partly that they, these missionary cosmopolitans, give a lot more energy than otherwise would have been there for this idea, the idea that the interests of the United States are allied with the non-white decolonizing peoples. They certainly pushed that much harder than anybody else did, but yet they lost. And that's sort of the sad story about this from today when, as we look around the world, you know, everybody's saying, well, it's too bad that the United States didn't have more creative engagement with a lot of these people. And it's too bad that we were so blinded by Cold War politics that we didn't try harder to engage with some of the nationalist movements in various parts of Africa and Asia. So it's, it's a sad story. It's a cautionary tale. 
it's an example of how the people who had the most experience abroad and were the most equipped to appreciate the indigenous cultures and their political needs around the world, these people tried again and again to get the American establishment to look the right direction, but they failed. I want to talk about other areas where the missionaries had a great deal of influence. You talk about the creation of Asian studies and scholarship of Orientalism, which came before. For those of us who are not familiar with Orientalism, what was the nature of that scholarship before Asian studies? Before World War II, there was relatively little attention to Asian history, Asian culture, Asian societies in any way in American colleges and universities. And what attention there was to things Asian before World War II was largely devoted to antiquity and or to literature and the arts and religious studies. So you had a fair amount on Sanskrit. You had a fair amount on ancient Babylon and ancient Egypt. Um, you had some on, uh, on ancient uh, Confucian classics. But what you didn't have was much on the modern history of those parts of the world. And you didn't have very much of what we would call more social scientific analysis. Now, what happens in World War II? is that a lot of the former missionaries and missionary sons are given prominence by their role in the government, like uh, Edwin Reischauer is an official of the State Department all the way uh, through the wars, a, a prominent example of this, but there are many other examples. And many of them, after the war, go into academia. Some of them had already been positioned in academia in low-level positions, but then after the war, their skills are suddenly more useful because of the American position in the world, because um, the Cold War rivalry with the Soviet Union means that we need a lot of attention, the government thought, to what's going on in Asia and Africa. So there's a lot of money that pours into that, and the foundations put money into it. So as a result, universities like Berkeley and Stanford and Columbia and Harvard and Princeton and Chicago, <clears throat> Cornell, they then developed what were then called area studies programs. Now, the area studies programs focused more on modern times and on what was going on in those societies during the last couple of hundred years. So it did not eschew an interest in literature and religion, but it wasn't focused as much on that. And as a result, then, you get a much more uh, capacious uh, comprehensive understanding of a lot of these different societies. Now, the way the concept of Orientalism comes in, and that's, of course, made famous by Edward Said's book of 1978 called Orientalism, the way that Orientalism comes in is that some of this earlier, more antiquarian scholarship did um, retail uh, prejudicial images of these societies uh, pre presented them in oh, infantile ways and made them more exotic, diminished the common humanity between those people and us, we Americans in 20th century America, and Western Europeans and so on. Uh, so Orientalism then became a term referring to that prejudicial view. Now, Said was essentially right in a lot of the complaints that he made about many of the things that had been written, especially about the Middle East and to some extent India, uh, during the years. 
But what I want to emphasize is that before 1978, before Said comes along and makes this uh, brilliant uh, critique, people like Reischauer at Harvard and a whole lot of people at Columbia and Berkeley and elsewhere were already undercutting so-called Orientalist stereotypes and developing uh, views of these foreign peoples as fully human, as not so exotic, as not so uh, infantile compared to us. So uh, without diminishing Said's contribution at all, I'm really trying to call attention to what was going on in American academia during the 20 or 30 years prior to the time that he wrote his book. I want to emphasize also that for all of Said's virtues, he says almost nothing about missionary writings. And I think that's an unfortunate gap in Said because the missionary writings are uh, much more complex than many of the texts that he attacks. In classical missionary writings, you can find Orientalist stereotypes, but you also find a lot of other stuff that cuts against it. But the main point is that area studies, as developed after World War II, is heavily a missionary-connected project. Now, there are also people that learned their languages in World War II and decided to become academics. But get this, during the 20 years after World War II, half of all of the presidents of the American Association for Asian Studies, the big professional organization for people that study China, Japan, Southeast Asia, and so forth, half of those presidents were former missionaries or sons or daughters of missionaries is an example of the huge impact that these people have. So, so, so Lillian, if we're talking about different arenas of public life in which former missionaries and missionary children had an impact, uh, academia, the foreign service, journalism, and the arts. These are all among these various domains in which missionary-connected people made a huge difference. I also noticed the influence of the missionaries on the development of foreign aid and the Peace Corps. Yes, that's true. When, when, the, when, when Kennedy decides to, hire, to start the Peace Corps, uh, you know, he gets Sergeant Shriver going on this, and Shriver has no idea what to do. But it turns out that there are all these people that have been running missionary service projects all through the years, and they call up Shriver, and they say, hey, I bet you could use our help. And Shriver says, I mean, I'm sort of burlesquing this. Shriver says, yeah, I could sure use help. Uh, come on over. So, so a lot of these old missionaries go over there, and they tell him how to set up his organization. And so the people that have studied the early years of the Peace Corps there in the early 1960s have established that, that the Peace Corps basically copies the missionary uh, service projects that have been developed all by all these ecumenical Protestants who were trying to move away from conversion and see their role in the world as of serving these uh, disadvantaged people who didn't have the technology and the education and the uh, awareness that was needed. So the, the Peace Corps is a direct lineal descendant of the service projects of the ecumenical Protestants, no question about it. Which fits with your previous scholarship on secularization. That's true, yeah. And, and this book um, continues that engagement because even though um, many of my cast of characters remained active in the Presbyterian or the Methodist Church or whatever, a lot of the others... Um, did almost all of their activities outside the churches, even though they remained nominally committed and would be, you know, counted as people who believed in God and Jesus and all that. So there's that. But then there are all these people 
that are what I call post-Protestants, that they're formed by this Protestant past, but they don't affirm Protestantism and they operate entirely outside its perimeter. Pearl Buck is a great example of that, who begins out, begins as a good Presbyterian, and, you know, leaves it all behind and, uh, you know, basically repudiates all that. John Hersey is also a post-Protestant. Uh, John Service, the great uh, foreign service officer, uh, when he's at Oberlin, he takes a required course on religion, and he reads William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience, which makes him an agnostic. So again and again in my story, broadened experiences undercuts um, provincial religion, provincial racism, provincial uh, imperialism. So some of my cast of characters remain active in the liberal ecumenical churches. They do. But there's a very heavy drift toward moving outside the churches. And that's why your reference to the concept of secularization is exactly right. And I see this book as in some ways um, a detailed articulation with many empirical examples of the story of secularization that I've been telling in my book since 1975. One other issue that caught my attention was the influence of missionaries and their children on domestic issues such as civil rights. It was important because if you look at um, the period before about 1960, there are relatively few Anglo-Protestants that are really deeply involved in any movement to fight Jim Crow and to oppose <clears throat> uh, anti-black racism in the society in general. Now, after 1960, that picks up rapidly. And even in the late 50s, you have more Anglo-Protestants involved with that. But before then, uh, you have, among white people, a lot of Jewish communists, and you have a handful of other white people doing this. But, um, but most, most of the white people who were actively involved, if not most, a great many of the white people who were involved in opposing Jim Crow and aligning themselves with the NAACP, aligning themselves with W.E.D. Du Bois, aligning themselves with uh, Benjamin Mays, uh, Channing Tobias, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, a great many of these people were from the missionary clique. And uh, <clears throat> I had a, an interesting letter the other day about this that I wanted to, to mention. A guy who grew up in North Carolina in the late 50s uh, told me that when he read my book, he understood for the first time a really serious conflict between within his extended family. And he said that he grew up in a North Carolina home in which the Lord's Prayer was always recited in Chinese. His grandparents had been missionaries to China. Some of his aunts and uncles had been missionaries to China. And, uh, and there, were, there were all these fights, though. And then he figured out when he read my book that everyone in his family who had been to China was an adamant opponent of Jim Crow, and everyone who had not been to China was a strong segregationist. And I thought that was a wonderful metaphor for this uh, transition. And the book includes a number of examples of former missionaries and missionary children who were uh, quite formidable figures in the civil rights movement before the age of the 1960s. Um, like this guy, George Hauser, missionary child from the Philippines, you know, he's, the, he's the, the, the first director of the Congress of Racial Equality, a white man, 1941. A lot of people don't know that. 
he organized, along with Baird Rustin, the big black political activist, he organized the first uh, freedom ride in 1947. These guys get on a bus and they go down into Virginia and North Carolina. They get beaten up by thugs in North Carolina. Uh, so they were out there early and, and really pretty tough people taking a lot of very hard risks. Uh, another of my characters, uh, Ruth Harris. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to add quickly that one of my characters, Ruth Harris, uh, was active uh, down at Selma. And that was uh, a culmination of her career as a civil rights activist. She's a former missionary to China. And uh, she was piloting civil rights workers back and forth on that road from Selma to Montgomery, the same one where Viola Liuzon was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan uh, that same uh, uh, that th- same uh, Selma summer. So anyway, my people are much involved in that. Thank you for asking about that, Lillian. I have one final question. What do you think could be done to further scholarship on this group? I think you have uncovered a neglected group of influencers that I have never thought about before. Maybe two or three were missionaries, but what we have here is more than a few with significant influence in many areas. This is this is the kind of book that um, doesn't pretend to have said it all and opens up areas that I hope other scholars, other writers will pursue with new research inquiries and new books and articles. And uh, I've came across several institutions that need a lot more work, the student volunteer movement, a big organization of students that go into the mission field, uh, uh, an NGO, uh, a non-government organization uh, called the, uh, the uh, Institute for Pacific Relations, founded in 1925. So many of my cast of characters wrote books there or had fellowships there or did workshops there. So they're institutions. And they're also... Uh, Individuals, a lot of individuals that nothing has been uh, said about for a long time, and the uh, so so that's that's something that's uh, that's uh, annoying as as well that there hasn't been much attention to that. One of my favorite uh, examples of what uh, hasn't been done is the um, integration of Pearl Buck into um, the field of American women's history. I have a footnote in there about seven of the most prominent textbooks in the history of American women and anthologies on American women's history. And the index of these books, there are hundreds and hundreds, even thousands, I guess, of names of women in American women's history. Pearl Buck is not mentioned. Now, yeah, isn't that striking? But Pearl Buck, I mean, you know, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, the most famous female author in all American history, uh, the most radical feminist of her generation. Um, I mean, somebody who had more of an impact on Western attitudes toward China than any individual since Marco Polo, not even a minor figure in American women's history. I mean, this has got to be a mistake. So that's an example of some of the things that I hope other scholars will pick up on. Thank you, David. You've been very generous with your time. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This edition has been in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>